Welcome to Northern Overexposure Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about the 1990s CBS series Northern Exposure. My name is Lee, and I'm always joined by my co-host and good friend Charles, who has never seen the show before. Yeah, I've never seen the show before. Um, first time seeing every single episode with fresh eyes. Yeah. So you've seen up till now, but this is every episode is, is brand new to you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you got it. <laughs> and and uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the show. I've seen it a, a couple of times, a number of times. And uh, yeah, that's kind of our dynamic. We like to kind of test out the value of the show over time. It's been, what, 30 years since it first aired? Just about? Yeah, just at the precipice of 30 years. Yeah, 1990, so. I guess. Summer of 1990. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, part of that is we will... Uh, at the end of our episodes, we typically bring on a guest who has, uh, sort of like Charles, never seen the show before. Not only have they never seen um, the episode, but they've never seen the show at all. So completely fresh take, sort of fish out of water vibe. And uh, so stick around to the end of the episode and we'll get into that and, and see how, how this show, how this episode holds up um, out of context. Yeah, we're just going to drop them off in the middle of the jungle. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we overanalyze the living crap out of each episode. And I think this one's got a lot of overanalyzing to do. Really? Okay, good. I've got, you know, we, we have uh, Charles and I, we discuss our notes before a little bit before we start the episode. I've got the standard amount, so um, we'll, we'll see uh, what comes from this. I'm interested to see what, what your take is, Charles. Yeah, definitely. W- what are we talking about here today? Well, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 6, War and Peace. Yeah, I guess that's the that's a Tolstoy reference? Yeah, Leo Tolstoy reference. I mean, I think it has to be. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I just don't think you can There's say no War other. and Peace and yeah. not have <laughs> Tolstoy. But we get an opening... With Holling having some sort of a uh, some sort of dream, and I gotta say, does this uh, opening montage remind you of elementary school? Uh, you okay? Yeah. So, so what Charles is uh, is referring to the the opening montage, the nightmare that Holling is having while he sleeps, is um, sort of like very fast paced stock footage, I would say, of wildlife and nature. There's these very fast drumming. You know, going on in the background, this musical score accompanying this gives it a lot of energy. Like I said, um, wildlife. Like there's this sort of. I think the very first image is this flash photo of a of a wolf. There's uh, traffic and uh, busy city life that that's kind of uh, a time lapse, fast paced. There's fire, lava. Maybe Charles, are you kind of referencing the like the eyewitness um, programs that we would watch in <laughs> elementary school? Yeah, that or uh, Bill Nye. Yeah, um, like the opening of Bill Nye, where to have those yeah. type of things. The graphics totally sync up to it. I feel like yeah, in the '90s, you know, with Bill Nye and things like that, it was like our attention spans were getting shorter and shorter. So faster paced television, <laughs> faster paced imagery. You know, they were also <laughs> just cracking the technology of video editing. So I think, that, think that's so, yeah. why, yeah, they were having all that. It also reminded me a lot of like middle school textbooks when you like flip through the pictures <laughs> and you see like a bunch of random photos because it would somehow relate to the, like the problem. The science, the, I guess. Yeah, and like it's the science uh, of it. Um, so that just reminded me. I was like, oh yeah, this was like 
to us it looks corny, but like the show aired in nineteen, this episode aired in nineteen ninety one. That was that was groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah probably so. Um, so Holling is having trouble sleeping. That's how that scene ends. But yeah, this is if we were keeping tally, we should have kept a like a, a scoreboard of like how many dream sequences we've seen so far. There's definitely been more dream sequences than episodes so far in this season. Yes, yes, I would totally agree with that. They are going really into dreams for season two. Yeah, and it's almost like, you know, what is it? Uh, what I did for love, I think. And and um, Spring Break both begin with dream sequences and then sort of the shot of the character waking up in bed, the character who is dreaming that dream sequence. Um, so that's kind of, you know... I, I don't want to criticize because that's what I love about the second season is that it delves so much into dream imagery, but kind of feels in, in retrospect, feels sort of like a broken record in that, in that regard that it, uh, it's done this for three episodes straight, maybe more. Yeah. I, I actually had a note on that where they keep opening with that type of stratagem and <laughs> it, it is getting kind of tiring. Yeah. But I, I mean, I like it. I like it. I don't want to be too much of a critic, but it's just something to notice that uh, this is sort of their winning formula, I guess. So they're going to keep doing it. Well, we'll see. Yeah. So yeah, basically all these nightmares are obviously giving Hauling um, insomnia. We see in the next scene, he's very grumpy. Uh, he kind of gets in an argument with the line cook, Dave, who I believe Jay referenced uh, very fondly in the last episode, our last episode. Dave is becoming more and more of a character is what I'm... Uh, Trying well, to establish. Is he still going to be a character? Yeah, because I guess he quits this? in this episode. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert: He'll probably come back. Uh, oh, okay. Because <laughs> yeah, Jay told you he's a, he becomes a a strong character in the series. But yeah, you know, but no, yeah, we get a little bit of Dave. He has uh, some lines, uh, more lines than normal. I, I wonder how many lines he's had up to now. But the point of the scene: Hauling is very, very grumpy, very unsettled from not sleeping at all, essentially. <laughs> Yeah. Dreams are keeping him awake. Yeah, it's a really interesting plot line. I want to touch on that later. Okay. But uh, at the brick where he's at, we, we get introduced to a new character. Um, yeah. Nikolai, Nikolai, who sort of just walks in and takes off his shades, takes off of his coat or his um, scarf and things. And everyone lights up. I think Shelly might be the first person to see him. She is. It also, is this why the townsfolks are incredibly knowledgeable about Russian literature and politics? This definitely ties, yeah, could tie into that. Because uh, in the Russian flu in season one, it's almost a joke that uh, Sicilians seem to know so much about Russia. I mean, granted, they do live geographically close to Russia. Still, they seem to be pretty... I don't know, erud is erudite the, the right word? Uh, just just pretty... Knowledgeable? Knowledgeable. Pretty knowledgeable about Russian affairs. But maybe this could offer an explanation. Yeah. So he comes in like Santa Claus and he's just got a bunch of gifts for everybody. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's why they the townsfolk are so happy to see him. It's kind of <laughs> ridiculous how everyone is in love with this guy. But yeah. Yeah, wait... Oh, okay. Never mind. I answered my own question. I was going to say, like, where was he in season one? Because it looks like he comes like Santa Claus... Mm -hmm. uh, in a in a certain time period, which I think is July, that they yeah. say that he always comes in at. But I realized Joel probably wasn't here. Like uh, exactly. It hasn't been a year that so that's what I was trying to figure out because Shelley seems to recognize Nikolai first. Also, Joel has a line something like, um, "Shelley, you know Nikolai the best," which um, for a moment confused me because, as we know, Shelley is 
Similarly to Joel, she's sort of a new addition to Sicily. Before Joel arrived, Shelley might have been there for six months, maybe a little bit longer. I think it's kind of hard to to pick the uh, timeline. But as you said, it seems like Nikolai normally visits Sicily every July. Um, And if that's true, probably Shelley's first summer in Sicily, she would have met Nikolai. Maybe that's how they, I'm assuming they became really close friends at that point. Because... As Joel says, Shelley knows him the best, apparently. Yeah, I, I think that timeline chronologically, that lines up with him. Yeah, before Joel gets there, but while Shelley is still there. Yeah, uh, he gives uh, various gifts to all the townsfolks. Yeah, what's and he, do you have a, a list of uh, what he's got in his bag? Uh, I just remember what he gave Ed. He gave him like... <laughs> yeah. uh, like a yarmulke of sorts? Yeah, it's like Woody Allen's grandfather's yarmulke. Yeah, which I actually tried Googling. I was like, wait, is that actually like a real thing? And I could not find any data supporting that of what well, they do um, say, Nikolai was saying. Yeah, they say um, Nikolai refers to Woody Allen's grandfather as Cantor Konigsberg. Um, Konigsberg being Woody Allen's uh, actual last name, like his birth last name. His real name is Alan Konigsberg. Oh, I, mean, I didn't know that. There's like a little bit of truth there, but yeah, who, who's to say if Woody Allen's grandfather was actually a rabbi? <laughs> All I could actually get was just uh, an old joke from Woody Allen, and it was, um, it goes, I'm very proud of this gold pocket watch. My grandfather on his deathbed sold me this watch. <laughs> Yeah, sold me this watch. Very, very Woody Allen joke. Yeah. Back back when he did stand up comedy, for those of you who didn't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, (laughs) he's not just a film director. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think he's always been associated with comedy, even though uh, his, you know, his best films are more dramatic, um, perhaps. But I think it's funny that Nikolai has a nickname for each of the. Each of his friends in Sicily, Shelly is Shalachka, Maggie is Margarita Margaritich. What is he saying? <laughs> I remember the Margarita part. Margarita Margaritichka. Uh, I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, <laughs> he calls Chris an interesting name, Christopher Abramovich. So suggesting, because Chris, we know canonically, Chris, Chris's name is Chris Stevens. In a dream, in, in episode eight, in a dream, his mom calls him Christopher Robin, uh, maybe suggesting that uh, Robin is Chris's middle name, but Nikolai's name for Chris uh, includes Abramovich, which is sort of a, um, a Russian version of Abraham. So I'm wondering, may- maybe that's sort of Chris's middle name. Like I don't know. I'm thinking he just made up middle names for all of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's actually founded in any basis. Mm-hmm. Another, I mean, there's a list of things that he brings these, uh, he brings the people of Sicily, but uh, another important thing is vodka. He brings a lot of vodka. Um, we see, you know, the townsfolk are, are drinking vodka throughout this episode. And in fact, we'll mention this in the next episode, um, jumping into the future, but we see some more vodka in episode seven of this season. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it's the same. But I could be wrong. They're drinking Stoli, right? Uh, he gives them Pertsovska Pertsovska vodka. I'm probably saying that wrong. I I wonder if that's actually a true brand. Oh, yeah, it is real. It's uh, pepper vodka from what I can tell. Right, yeah. I guess Chris uh, remarks that he's excited for the pepper vodka. Interesting, like a spicy vodka. Does it seem to you that like he's almost like a walking stereotype, though? Yeah, I... um, for sure. Yes. Uh, so let's talk about his character. Like, who is Nikolai? 
Nikolai, as we learn, um, I think it's interesting how a lot of the facts are hidden at first. Whenever Joel finally meets him, we understand that Nikolai is very famous. At first, uh, uh, rewatching this, I couldn't remember. Was he like a violinist or something? But it becomes clear pretty quickly that he is a very famous Russian singer, maybe opera or... I thought it was pop. Yeah, probably so, because it doesn't sound super operatic, that the things that he sings. So yeah, maybe a pop star from Russia. It turns out the reason why he's in Sicily, he, he gives a very moving uh, story about standing in the moonlight and dreaming of Sicily, wishing that he was there. It seems to move a lot of the townsfolk, but perhaps the real true motivation for him arriving in Sicily early uh, he admits right after that that it sounds like his booking agent misscheduled him. So he's got like nothing to do or he ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time, maybe. He's basically just there on like uh, mistiming, mm-hmm. essentially. So obviously we were talking about, is this sort of a Russian stereotype? Um, yeah, I, I think probably so. The, the best thing that we can say, though, is um, I think that at least the actor is actually um, a Russian-born actor. He's not just like oh. some like a white guy who puts on this Russian accent, which I feel like happens a lot. Yeah, that happens so much. Let's see. The actor is Elia Baskin, who is uh, probably most known for his role in Moscow on the Hudson, the Robin Williams film. Hmm. But also the actor that plays Nikolai plays um, Peter Parker's landlord in Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3, the... Uh, the Sam Raimi films. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got a connection to the golden trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd give it gold, but. <laughs> well, I think that the character of Nikolai is. I, I, I like that he's an outsider, that he's able to uh, bring in a bunch of new tricks yeah. uh, to the town. Um, I, I like the idea that the town's folks have a local visitor. Like, yeah. it, it's a neat idea, though. They do always have, like. Kind of their- similar to Ingrid from. Um, what I did yeah, for love. She comes like right. once every season or something. It's similar to that, but this one's more like he's almost like an urban legend at this point. Like he, like the whole town, like they revolve around him right. when he comes into town, mm-hmm. which is kind of nice. Uh, it's like their own little micro holiday. Yeah, I believe Chris like starts to uh, decorate K-Bear with uh, Russian stuff. I think the box says on it, like there's this little decorations and uh, he pulls out his, he's looking for his copy of War and, War and Peace because yeah. it's going to begin the annual reading of War and Peace. Again, referring to the title of the episode, the Tolstoy <laughs> novel. He would also, he has like this little kinetic bear toy. Like a, oh yeah, like, sort, of, like, sort of like juggling maybe. Yeah, it's like juggling that looks like it was made by like a babushka of some kind. <laughs> it's a cool toy. I like it. Yeah, I tried Googling for that because I thought that it might be like a common child's toy in Russia, but n- n- no, I, mm. I couldn't find any hits on it. But it is a really interesting mechanism. Uh, so if you're watching the episode, look out for that. It definitely gets some screen time. So mm-hmm. there's some Russian terms that I looked up that I uh, learned from this episode. Oh, which ones? Nostrovia, which is uh, sort of like means uh, t- to your good health or cheers. You know, that's what they say before they shoot back the pepper vodka. Um, what else said? Privet and Dosvedenya. Probably saying that wrong, but... I think those are greetings and goodbyes. Yeah, I think Prevet meets hello. Yeah. And yeah, that's. I think that's what I got. There's there's tons of Russian things going on in this episode. Yeah. And then we also see later in the episode that he has like a chess round or like a, like a competition of sorts, a feud, right. you could say, between Maurice and Nikolai. And Nikolai obviously represents Russia, but it's he's uh, 
pretty much playing like Boris Spotsky. Yeah. Who's the, um, what's that famous chess match? Yeah. Bobby Fischer and Boris Spotsky. Right. So that's kind of, uh, revived, um, reincarnated in this episode. Can I just say there are probably more than a hundred cigarettes in this episode. Everyone is smoking <laughs> in this episode, particularly yes. in that scene, that chess scene. Do you want to talk? Let's talk about that chess scene for a second. Yeah. Well, really quickly to establish context, the way that we even get to the scene is that Maurice and Nikolai have a feud, like I said earlier, and the town has like kind of like a get together for Nikolai when he comes in. Yeah. But then Maurice it's like a secret. In. Why? That's what I thought was interesting. Like, why is his party so secret? I guess it's specifically for to to keep it away from Maurice. But Joel stumbles upon it, and uh, Shelley almost denies him entrance, but she says, okay, since it's just you, you can come in. But like, why would they exclude him? I don't know. That's what I thought was confusing as well. Cause it's not like he wouldn't know anything about this. He's neutral. Yeah. So why wouldn't they invite him to that? It's probably, I guess, just to build the myth, like we were saying, and, and to, to build the, uh, the importance of Nikolai, which as I said, unexplicably, when we get introduced to Nikolai, everyone loves him. The whole town revolves around him. He's a very important, the screenwriters want us to feel that he's a, he's a very important character before we even understand who he is. Yeah. So we have this little get together for Nikolai and then Maurice barges in. Uh, he must've found out in some way that something was going on at the break. Mm-hmm. So it's revealed that the um, uh, Maurice always loses in chess against him, but mm-hmm. they have to settle it out again. Yeah. So they, that's what brings us. They, they have, I guess their annual chess match, in front of a large audience of townsfolk, all smoking Pretty cigarettes. Much the entire town. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and uh, Ruth Ann is sort of keeping track with uh, this really interesting sort of like, what would you call that? Sort of a... Uh, like a, a quilt of sorts. Yeah. It's sort of a graphical representation of the board and she can move mm-hmm. the different pieces so that when she says knight to E4 or whatever, um, we can see that happening uh, from a sort of a top-down view. She speaks into a little microphone. It almost kind of feels like bingo in a way, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots of cigarettes, lots of slow cross dissolves so we get to understand this like slow passage of time. Joel is bored out of his mind with this. It's like doing like a crossword or something. Yeah, because he doesn't understand the importance between the historic match of uh, Bobby Fischer and Boris Spotsky because <laughs> he's new in town, so he just sees it as just a regular old chess round. Uh, he doesn't care which way or the other who wins. Mm-hmm. Um, who won that match, by the way, the historic match? Uh, Bobby Fischer. Okay. He finally took him down. Well, in this one, in this one, it seems like uh, Russia wins, right? <laughs> Yeah, the well, maybe well, illegally. Supposedly, I still can't tell what Maurice is saying when he says that Nikolai cheated, like because he rings the bell and then does the move. Yeah, and he claims that you can't do that. Well, yeah, once you ring the bell, you pass your turn. So he did it out of order. You're supposed to move and then like end your turn by ringing the bell because mm-hmm. there's like the timer on the table. You know, in chess matches, you can like time your moves, I guess, but. Yeah, so he d- he does this sort of unorthodox out of order. Um, so technically, but up to r- like regulations, tournament standards, this is an illegal move. I can see it being illegal, and it is illegal, but I don't see how that's cheating because he rung the bell and then did the move to get him into checkmate. He 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 didn't have to wait to think of the checkmate after he rung the bell and then moved the piece. He already knew he got him. Yeah, it was like a point one second difference. So I don't see how that's cheating. I mean, obviously, like Nikolai was going to win, but yeah, um, according to the rules, like the rules are there for some reason, 
and uh, this <laughs> broke the rules. But obviously, I agree with you, Charles. <laughs> Nikolai, Nikolai beat Maurice pretty fair and square. But um, they get into a fighting match and or like a yelling match, and Nikolai demands satisfaction is what he says. He like smacks Maurice with a squash. What does he hit him with? He Let picks me... up something out of the crowd. He smacks Maurice like kind of on the shoulder and he says like, I demand satisfaction. Basically challenging Maurice ends up challenging Nikolai to a duel with guns. Yeah, a duel of pistols. But is that a squash? What, it, <laughs> what does he hit him with? Let me take a look at that. There's no extra coverage for that. There's really just the two shot. I think it's a cloth. Yeah, that would make sense. Oh, wow. I think you're right. If you watch the scene, um, as the two of them stand up, the camera pulls in closer to kind of get in a, a close-up-ish, like uh, 50-50 two-shot between Maurice and Nikolai. But before the camera starts to push in, the person in between the two of them is Chris. And you can see he pulls something out of his back pocket and lays it on his lap. Like it was not supposed to be seen on, seen on camera because by the time whatever he pulls out of his pocket, by the time that gets to his lap, the camera is already like focused on Maurice and Nikolai. And Nikolai grabs whatever's in Chris's lap and smacks Maurice. And I think you're right. It's probably a napkin or a cloth, right? Yeah, I think it's like some sort of... uh, But it looks like a washing cloth. Looks like a squash to me (laughs) for some reason. (laughs) Kind of want to watch that again real fast. Rewatching the scene, I never noticed that there's some sort of uh, what appears to be a Russian propaganda poster in the back. Wait, wait, what? Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah. What? I didn't really. I noticed that it was. It kind of looks like the brick, maybe, but I couldn't really tell what was in the background because there's different. There's different um, decorations, like that poster. What is it? Yeah, I I, I don't read Russian and I I I don't know how to translate <laughs> it, but it's got like a picture of like a hand rising up. And it's in red lettering, and it definitely looks like it's saying something to the tune of, like, overthrow the government or something like that. <laughs> it looks like, like, yeah, very propaganda. It looks right. like super, super <laughs> manifesto communism right here. <laughs> I don't know why the townsfolk of Sicily would even have that poster. I don't know. Yeah, there's like a kind of looks like a worker. It's all in red, and it's like this worker with his arm outstretched. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go with this plot line for a little bit, and we can follow it up to the duel that you're going to have between Maurice and Nikolai. And I really like this duel setting. Yeah, I guess that's the logical uh, progression of this. They are entering into a duel. The setting uh, being sort of this uh, snowscape, right? Lots of snow. What, what would you say? Yeah, it's right outside from like the town from what I can tell. Okay, like outskirts uh, of Sicily. Outskirts of Sicily, there's snow everywhere, which is kind of neat because uh, whenever they take their steps, you can see mm. the uh, footprints in the snow, which is really nice. Oh, imagine resetting that after each take. <laughs> to oh, like Bury gosh. it all up again. I just thought, of, oh, geez, <laughs> that's got to be a nightmare. Um, and it's obviously, yeah, it's bitterly cold from what I can tell. Um, Jelly even mentions it throughout the scene that it's cold. Yeah. Uh, and then we get into probably the zaniest but I don't mean that as a pejorative. I mean, like, as a compliment. Do you like, like, you like the this? Yeah. Most out of box idea that I've seen. Um, to set it up, we're getting into the duel. Maggie is administering like pistols or something, right? Yeah. Well, Ruthann is the one who provides the pistols. Gotcha. But I think Maggie is the one that inspects the pistol, like um, Nikolai's pistol, because mm-hmm. she is his second. Which, by the way, a second is also an assistant in chess rounds. Oh, okay. I knew that. Yeah. So cool. there's a second. There's in some um, both chess and parallels duels. here. Interesting. Yeah. 
So Maggie inspects the pistol for Nikolai. I don't know who inspects the pistol for Maurice. Yeah, uh, Maurice, Maurice brought that. his own pistol, but maybe he didn't. Yeah. He didn't I have a second. Know. But it is interesting. Joel is uh, the whole time uh, surprised. <laughs> he's, he's surprised by Maggie just going along with this. He's surprised by the whole town going along with it because everyone's in the back watching and seemingly uh, cheering on this. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, murder attempt. Obviously, the logical thing to do would be not to shoot another person over a uh, disagreement, but the whole town seems to just have written it off like this is the only viable option. This is like <laughs> the only thing that they can do. Uh, I believe Nikolai gets drunk with Holling and Chris before this, uh, again drinking vodka, and he he suggests that backing out would be the too cowardly. Like he can't do that now. Right. And and they agree. Something yeah, to that well, effect. I like how he calls it. It's like, it's the smart, but cowardly way of doing something. That's what Chris says. Yeah. Backing out would be smart, but cowardly. Like there's no way you could do it. Well, for a town that doesn't even have a police officer, I guess this is how they handle disputes. Yeah. There's no like wow. court of law or anything like that, but we get down to the countdown. They take 10 paces each and then Joel comes in and stops the door right then and there by breaking the fourth wall. Hold it! Hold it! This is ridiculous. Hey, we play to a, a very sophisticated television audience. They know Maurice is not going to kill Nikolai, and they definitely know that Nikolai is not going to kill Maurice. Wait a minute, Fleischman. You can't just take it upon yourself to step out of character. Nobody yelled cut. Joel's right. The duel is stupid. Oh, Look, yeah. can we just stick to the matter at hand? How about the fifth revision? Oh. Where, where Nikolai's abscessed tooth starts acting up, and, and well, he just cancels. Glib and textually unwarranted. Right. What if Maurice drifts and kills somebody else by mistake? Oh, great. So I'm a klutz now, huh? Look, if there's not a duel, then what is the point of this whole story? What's the point? The point is man's tendency to war. But Joel here is asking us to step outside of certain events and say enough. Am I right? Listen, whatever. It's getting cold out here. Why don't we go on to the next scene? It's a pretty good one. Okay. All right. That is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's pretty magical to see something like you said, um, something kind of so out of the box uh, on primetime TV. And it resolves perfectly because you knew that it was going to resolve in some way. You just didn't know the how. Yeah, you knew that they, they would return to the status quo, right? Like you knew that they couldn't have Maurice be like a murderer for the rest of the series. <laughs> or, by, you know, they couldn't kill Maurice off. So, yeah, I just don't know like how that. they're going to settle it. I like that they're out of character when they're doing this scene, but they're also still in character. Yeah, they're, they're definitely out of character, but a lot of the, the types of comments that they give are still pertinent to what that character might be influenced to say, which might suggest that the, um, the writers, uh, any good writer as a show goes on, would probably write to the actor to play the character. You know, like they, they know the, how the actor is best suited to play the role. So they write to yeah. the actor's strengths. I like that. Like Maggie is obviously trying to remain responsible and to police it. Um, she even comments that it wouldn't be Joel's character to say this, to break the fourth wall, which <laughs> if there had to be a character, who do you think would be the character to break the fourth wall? Uh, maybe Chris, because he's, he's out there, you know? But I like that Chris kind of uh, reflects on the, uh, the textual, like, symbolic meaning of uh, man's tendency to war is, like, what he, his little um, insight yeah, in this. Yeah, I like that 
Maurice can comment on his own character's growth by saying like, oh, so now I'm a klutz. Yeah. And that's exactly what Maurice would say. If and the actor, actual, like the actor, yeah. a lot of actors are, you know, not saying this in a bad way, but vain, you know, they want to, they want to be liked by an audience. So they don't want their characters to be bumbling fools all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you know why it's called a fourth wall? Uh, I guess because if you're in a room, typically a, a boxed room has four walls. If you're um, on stage, Watching, watching a play being performed on stage, uh, the fourth wall is sort of see-through. That's like the one wall that is not there so that we can actually see into the room. And when a character addresses the audience, they're talking through this uh, imaginary see-through wall. Is, is that correct? Did you just guess that? No, no, no. I mean, we learned this in school, I'm sure. Oh, okay. I was going to say, cause that's exactly right. I was like, that's a really good guess. <laughs> Nailed it. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's kind of like when, uh, in episode eight, when Chris is asked, uh, what's the deal with the Aurora Borealis? And his guess is, uh, I don't know. It's just some sort of like, you know, the electrons are being trapped in the, you know, he gives this very like scientific yeah. explanation, <laughs> but it seems like he just guessed it. It's like, what? <laughs> how did you Wait, know how? that? <laughs> Overall, I really like that. I, I really like the breaking of the fourth wall and how they resolved that scene. I think that that was probably, I'm not going to say revolutionary, but definitely bold of them to do. Yeah, maybe it's not the first time that's been done, but I think for sure this is like breaking, this is breaking new ground in, in some ways. I, referring to the, uh, we talked about it last episode, the Austin, Texas festival where they had sort of the cast and crew reunion for Northern Exposure. Joshua Brand mentions uh, this episode being one where they were pretty satisfied with how they'd written it, but uh, the studio or whoever uh, were, were not going to allow it. In fact, uh, the way Joshua Brand puts it is he had to go to a meeting um, essentially where he was um, supposed to um, quote unquote kiss the ring. So basically say, all right, I'll do what you say and we'll keep the show. To his retelling, he, that's what he did. But as soon as he did that, when he was flying back to set, uh, he just felt bad. He felt terrible about kissing the ring, as he put it, about entering into this proposal or entering into this sort of uh, these shackles, um, giving the control to the studio and relinquishing any sort of authorial intent that he had. Um, so he called his agent and said, you know, I just said this thing. I just agreed to it, but I want out. I, want to, I don't want to do the show anymore. So that, that was what had happened for a brief moment in time. But I guess as, as soon as the studio heard word of that, they called him back and were essentially like, okay, fine. Um, you can do whatever you want, um, but you can't ask us for any more money. So that was like, mm. basically the budget for the show was the same from that episode onward. They, they never increased budget. And, and we talked about this. I feel like it, it's, a, it's noticeable visually that this season seems to have a little higher budget maybe than the first. Um, and we'll see how creative they can get with that budget. But I feel like it's just the right amount of money they need. You know, they, 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 they don't always have to do crazy set pieces or do anything crazy, but they can get pretty weird. And for instance, something like this, you know, it's just a big open snowy field, which is, uh, if you were shooting it in L.A., it might be hard to do, but essentially free when you're up in Roslyn, Washington. Yeah. So I, I get your point right there. Like the limitation is actually what drives or fuels the art. Yeah. That's uh, sort of the, because you're being limited in money. Therefore, you have to be more creative. Break or the rules. Crafty. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's really interesting to hear about, though. Uh, you said it was for this particular episode. Yeah, this episode. It was that. It was that ending because the studio was like, "No, no way. We're not going to air this." That's amazing. <laughs> Um, yeah, I would totally recommend, again, I mentioned this last time, recommend checking out that interview, listeners, if you haven't seen it before. There's, um, I'm sure the festival itself has probably posted a, a video link of it. I heard it as like a repost from some other podcast, but uh, it's, it's worth watching or listening to. So sort of the conclusion of this episode, uh, this storyline that we're talking about, Marilyn suggests that they just, let's just move on to the next scene. It's a, it's a pretty good one. So they don't really resolve the duel at all, but they jump to the next scene, which is, yeah. um, which is nice. Everyone's back in the brick and singing. By the way, um, when we're introduced to Nikolai and he sings a song in the brick, do you, do you know what song he sings? No, I don't. Do you? Um, I didn't really do a lot of research. My first stop for music is typically moosechick.com, which tends to list uh, a lot of stuff about each episode, uh, the music mm -hmm. especially. And I like to check with it for each episode because the DVDs that we're watching, you and I, Charles, um, will oftentimes leave out original broadcast music and, and replace it with, um, with sort of Muzak. But for this episode, it seems like they don't have the complete music listing. So anyone listening now, if, if you know what song is being played uh, or what song that Nikolai sings, Write into our show, northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. You can also write into Moose Chick. Yeah, I wasn't able to kind of figure that out. He does, yeah. he does eventually sing Home on the Range. He sings some other songs. We get a lot of uh, Dr. Zhivago music, like the musical mm -hmm. score, I believe, is being played in the duel or, or leading up to the duel. We hear the, the film score for that. Yeah, I think it was just hard to find out because he was singing in Russian, and uh, I didn't know how to... Translate that, yeah. type that into Google. <laughs> yeah, the reason I bring up the music in this scene is Marilyn has been playing piano in a lot of these uh, scenes in the brick, um, but it's pretty obvious we get to see her hands uh, at the end here as she's playing. She does a good job miming, but she's obviously not playing the, uh, the piano in real life. And uh, <laughs> in that first scene that we're talking about, the song that we don't know, uh, all of the townsfolk of Sicily clap along to the music. And of course, they're all clapping like way off beat. That's just something that uh, that <laughs> irks me a lot is when when music doesn't sync up, like the players on screen, for instance, Marilyn at the piano, and people clapping to the music is way off. Isn't that really hard to film? Yeah, if you're gonna, um, uh, well, for instance, the last scene, it seems like they had the playback down pretty in sync um, because I guess how it would work is you would play back the music and. On set, you play back the music that is pre-recorded. The actor would lip sync, Nikolai would lip sync, and Marilyn would sort of move her hands uh, in the rhythm of the piano. But I guess while they're, I, I'm trying to figure out how they got it so wrong in the first time that song that Nikolai sings. Uh, but I guess the playback was off, or the, or just maybe the performers are clapping on the wrong beat. So that's how that could happen. Maybe the editor kind of didn't sync up all the clips. You know? Yeah, let's throw him under the bus. Say <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> I guess so. overall, I thought it was a good resolution of the plot line. I mean, it's as best as you are ever gonna get, and it looks like that. You know, all the townsfolks are just uh, enjoying the presence of um, Nikolai for one more time. Yeah, the song here is really nice. It's a jazzy tune called "What'll I Do" by Irving Berlin. I think it's a very nice. That's that you know that sad jazz. Yeah. Music. <laughs> um, it's good. 
It's a good feeling. It's a good ending, actually. I, I really like the ending of this episode. Holling brings in a, a, a little young stag, a little cute little deer, which uh, maybe we should jump. That This is sort of the resolution of his plot line. Maybe we should jump back and uh, talk about Holling for a second. Yeah, let's talk about that. So Holling goes and sees Joel. I believe that's how the plot line begins, is that Holling goes and visits him to see what is going on. And I think that Joel just prescribes him a Valium yeah. in order to help him sleep, which I didn't know could actually be prescribed for sleep disorder. And it turns out it can because it's like one of the side effects. I thought Valium is to make you go to sleep. So calm you down, right? Yeah, it's to reduce anxiety, I believe, which leads to the side effect of possibly also calming you down to go to sleep. But its main purpose isn't to fix sleep, though. It's definitely for like uh, more toward the sides of mental illness. Okay. Well, let's think about the uh, options Joel lays out. He lays out a sleep study, um, which is impossible in Sicily. They don't have the right equipment. Uh, he lays out, uh, <laughs> jokingly, like 10 years of psychology or therapy psychoanalysis, um, which they don't have time for. So the easy option is just to give pills to give pills to hauling. But um, you said the pills are typically uh, prescribed to treat anxiety. A large part of what is keeping hauling awake is the anxiety of these dreams. He feels like he's being bombarded by his dreams. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, I couldn't really get the theme of what they were trying to go with on this plot line because the next scene that talks about it is, we talked about it before, but it's before the duel where Holling, Joel, and Chris and Nikolai are in the brick just drinking, just drinking the vodka. Mm-hmm. And Nikolai has a suggestion to actually abandon what you think is in character and just go against your base instincts. Like, for example, I think he uses the fact that Tolstoy went into the fields. Yeah. Instead of being sort of a, I guess, wealthy upper-class author, um, he went out into the fields and did hard work. And and that's what cured his insomnia or his writer's block or something? Yeah. So with that in mind, Holling has to go do something that's out of character. And what's out of character for him is to go hunt because he had you know, laid an oath, became a pacifist of some kind. So I I see how it relates to breaking the fourth wall where you like characters are getting out of character. So therefore Holling has to go out of character, but I I don't see how it relates to the entire episode. Do you? I'm trying to recall what Chris says about it Um, because Holling at first confuses the suggestion. He says, okay, oh, I just need to work really hard and that'll tire me out. Yeah. But what does Chris say? He unpacks it doing something crazily or, or reckless. And like you said, uh, Charles, like you said, doing something against the grain, like out of the out of the ordinary from yourself. And so I like how you connected that to breaking the fourth wall, going out of the box, doing something that you haven't done before in the show, you know, like as the writers would have done. Thematically, I guess that that's how that plays. Was that your question? Yeah, uh, kind of. What I are was you just ki- trying to see yeah. why was that being the advice doled out? which is to say like, oh, what you need to do is go back against what you think you would do. Yeah, I guess um, you're right, because there could be any number of ways how this show could have solved um, Holling's insomnia, and it probably wasn't going to be the the logical way that Joel chooses. There's always going to be some sort of surprise or magical element to the show. No, yeah, I guess that's the best answer I can think of, is it kind of ties in with uh, getting out of the box a little. Okay. I, I can see that. It, it's just that it seems like the other plot line, which we uh, have not discussed yet, goes 
opposite to that to a degree. So we're, we're having like two conflicting ideas within this episode, in my opinion. Okay. Well, let's uh, talk about that in just a second. I, I think we can wrap up hauling pretty quickly here, but I just wanted to say um, I really like hauling uh, the actor in this episode. John Cullum, I believe, mm-hmm. he gets to play a different type in this episode. He's distressed, grumpy, uh, which we don't see a lot of. He's usually very calm and mild-mannered. Mm-hmm. Lots of anxiety and um, almost a depression when he consults with Joel. Uh, I, I, I like the scene. This is separate, but when, when Hauling seems to have it all figured out after talking with Nikolai and Chris, he tells Joel that he feels... Um, a certain clarity. Holly, we have to address this problem. A man needs sleep as much as food or water. Joel, I am addressing it. I've got it all figured out. You do? You have been searching in your medical books and your journals for the answer of how to help me when all along it was right there in front of us. It's so clear and simple. Oh, well, well, what is it? Don't worry, Joel. I know what I have to do. Hey, Holly, are you okay? I'm concerned about you. Sleep deprivation is a its a terrible thing. It's actually used as a form of torture to break people down. Now, it can cloud your judgment. I don't think my mind has ever been clearer. The Yucatec Eskimos fasted for weeks in order to attain this kind of mental clarity. All right, you just promised me if you have any rash thoughts, any depression, any anxiety, anything, you, you come see me, not just as a physician, but as your friend. So he, he feels... Um, very certain and precise about what he's going to do. But we don't know what that is just yet. We actually get a fake out <laughs> of what he does. Oh, yeah. I like that scene, actually, with the shotgun and he's in the bathroom. Yeah. What do you like about that? It's kind of scary. Well, like, I, 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 it's, I like it because it's funny. Yeah. Because it's like she, it was a misrepresentation of what. Shelly, like, bangs on the bathroom door because Holling's been in there for a while. And it looks like he's about to... I guess commit suicide with a rifle, but he just fell asleep with the rifle in his hand. Yeah, it was just a misunderstanding. Like he he just wants to go hunting again, and uh, he says he wants to go hunt a moose. Yeah, but at the end of the episode, it brings back a deer. Well, his story was uh, I don't know if it was that particular deer or he had like an animal in his sights, but right before he pulled the trigger, he passed out. So it worked. Yeah, it worked to try to get out of his comfort zone. When he woke up, uh, there was the little the young stag the cute little animal that he brings back to the brick. Yeah, I think it's just a neat little ribbon to put on that plot line. Just, and it also ends the episode by looking at the deer, right? Yeah, I think you're right. It probably like gets close into the deer or something. Is that right? It gets like a close up on the deer with the music playing. Yeah, it definitely does. Well, why do you think he, why do you think it's a deer that he brings back? Like the deer represents innocence? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe like a, a Bambi type thing, perhaps. But honestly, like, um, in a situation like this, I just think like whatever animal the animal handler could get them, you know, because <laughs> they don't like they probably wouldn't want to bring a moose into the brick, which we found out as a set last episode. They wouldn't want to bring like a full grown moose into the set. Um, like a bear would be pretty hard to to wrangle for this last scene. There's a lot of extras in this scene, too. So something that's uh, pretty docile, you know, so just logistically. Oh, um, okay. it might be that easier. makes sense. Yeah, they can't bring like wolves. But our job is the- is also to analyze the uh, context or I guess the textual elements. I like your I like your um, your proposal that a, a deer represents sort of uh, what did you say innocence? Yeah, sort of <laughs> represents. Uh, I like how we have to like whisper it as if we're like next to an audience. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. One of the things I was Googling 
Dieter in symbolism because I actually really didn't know what they represented in the literature. Uh, and one of them was regeneration and because hmm. their antlers fall off. Oh, wow. So they regrow the antlers. So in some cultures, they look at it as a, a cyclical symbolism. Uh, so maybe that could also be something to look at too. Like we're returning back to the status quo maybe? Yeah, returning back to the t- status quo from after the duel. If Nikolai had perished, you know, symbolically in that duel, this is his rebirth perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Holling says something to the effect of, he didn't need to go out there to kill something. He just needed to get out there, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's our bow at the end of the episode, as you said. But we skipped uh, our important or our third plot line that we never got to. Yeah, I think it's probably one of my more favorite plot lines of season two. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I love Ed. Um, this is not one of my favorites, but no, let's hear it because I, I love the show. I want to hear. Tell, tell us about it. What would you like? Yeah, so... Ed meets supposedly the love of his life, Lightfeather. Yeah. Which is an odd name. Lightfeather what do you think Duncan. About the name? Um, it's interesting. So we learn that Lightfeather is the daughter of Father Duncan, who seems to be um, a preacher. And uh, we also learn throughout the episode that, at least at the dinner table, the Duncan family is comprised of Father Duncan and what seems to be seven daughters who are all fair skinned and uh, red haired. Light feather being yeah, one of them. I don't, it, it, I don't know why every single one of them is uh, red haired. Yeah, uh, we don't. We don't really get to see Mrs. Duncan or, or their their mother, the daughters' mother. But we don't really get to know the names of the sisters either. But my best guess is uh, there's some um, Native American influence where the, where they live. So light feather sounds like a very Native American name, despite the uh, character being fair skinned, uh, like Caucasian. But um, yeah, maybe they, there's just so many daughters. Huh. There could be so many variables and names. <laughs> Why not like that? I guess. Yeah, he meets her in Ruth Ann's store and she leaves her broom there and Ed has to go hurry up and bring back the broom to her. And then uh, they have that like slow shot. Slow motion. Her. her hair is blowing in the wind. Yeah, sort of. which is like, it's so cliche that it's being played for laughs. Yeah, it really translates to I'm falling in love. That's like the visual yeah. language of that. And I, it occurs to me that a lot of the cliches or stereotypes of falling in love is happening to Ed because he's only seen it in movies and television shows. So therefore, his representation of falling in love would be in this manner. Yeah, so yeah. It's really in character for him. Sort of plays uh, out like a movie. Uh, I guess. Seeing this. Yeah. Do you think she left that broom there in the store on purpose? Um, no, I didn't catch that, but maybe, maybe so. Why, why do you think that? She says, uh, she says to Ed whenever he returns back the broom, oh, great, now I have to clean the barn now. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that, yeah, that's right. Maybe she left it, not for Ed to, not to meet Ed, not as a way in, but rather as a way out of her, um, her chores of cleaning. <laughs> chores. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's pretty fun, and... Ed's got a love interest. He's falling in love. Chris yeah. is very excited about it. Ed has to come to him to ask, you know, you're, you seem to be um, very good with the women. How does it work? How does love work? Yeah. So Chris has got to play, you know, like an older brother role to Ed and he's pulling a de Bergerac. Yeah. Serrano de Bergerac of sorts. He, um, how does it actually come up? Because I think, I think it's Ed who suggests it. He asks Chris to write him a letter for for light feather. Yeah. I think that's how it comes out is that he asked him to write a letter and then it's obviously seen to the audience that 
Ed has no idea how to write a letter. I mean, shoot, he he barely has computer literacy skills. Like we saw <laughs> yeah. in season one, so yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know how to wax poetry. So he has Chris do it for him for at least this one time. Chris's poem is pretty pretty lackluster, I'd say. Yeah, I don't know why that's compared to the motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, it's like what is that? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day, but except with motorcycle imagery? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, um, Chris says. I think the first time that we see Chris in episode two, he mentions something about, uh, no, he, he mentions he likes to sculpt. Um, he might mention something about motors and Harleys and stuff. I think he does, actually. You're right. It is a part of Chris, though we don't actually see Chris ever riding a motorcycle yet. We see him riding a snowmobile, as you pointed out, in um, the second episode of season two. But mm-hmm. yeah, I guess they're just trying to hammer in this, um, this show Bible note that Chris is up. Harley guy. Yeah. I Well, I also think that possibly it has another reason because whenever they go and consummate their love between Ed and Lightfeather, Ed constantly references a lot of nature or outdoor experiences mm. to sex, whereas yeah. she constantly references machinery to describe sex. So, so there's sort of, of a, a di- going uh, against him. Yeah. A break between the, between the two. Yeah. Exactly. What is so you mentioned that yeah, yeah, Chris, I mean sorry, Ed has uh, some problems writing poetry, uh, maybe because of his computer literacy skills, but <laughs> it seems like, you know, for better or for worse, he's not a terrible poet when he's talking about being so surprised about um, losing his virginity and what it felt like. Uh, it sounds sort of poetic. You you mentioned just now that it's sort of a more natural. What what are some of the things he invokes? It's like going on a trip with Uncle Anku or something. Yeah, I think it's like wiping the mud away, like using a stick to get an itch. Oh, yeah, when he, he said he had like a cast on for a long time. Yeah. And then when he got the cast off, it felt amazing. When, when he was out with Uncle Anku in the cold weather, they finally returned home after a long expedition and they got to do the sweat lodge, the sauna that Uncle Anku has. That felt amazing. Uh, before we jump off of that, um, so we're still in that scene in the barn whenever he sees her again. Uh, why is her character chewing gum like so much? Uh, I don't know. I think that's just like a character note to kind of show because her whole thing is like she seems kind of uninterested except for when it comes to we can tell her interest is in the words, which she keeps reciting. Um, she keeps saying the words too. The words, the words, give me the words. So maybe that's a, in a way to enhance her interest in one singular thing, uh, whereas everything else that seems to happen, she seems pretty uninterested. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Was that like a way to write characters to be uninterested in the topic back in the 90s? It was to show them chewing gum? Yeah, maybe so. Or just like unappreciative or... Chewing gum is is seen as uh, not unmannered, but what's the word I'm looking for? Uncouth. Uncouth. Um, just not a very polite thing to do when you're um, engaging in social activities. You know, you you want to give someone your attention, and mm, if you're chewing okay. gum, people. <laughs> I, I just remember teachers getting mad at that. Or, yeah, I, I was just really confused as to why it was heavily prominent uh, throughout that scene that she was chewing gum and then she spits it out. Yeah, but that's a that's an important character note, I guess. When does she spit it out? Right before they start doing it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, they they do their you know proverbial roll in the hay. Yeah, in front of the cows. <laughs> 
Yeah, it kind of pans up and there's a cow literally <laughs> yeah. two feet from them. There's a cow <laughs> right above them watching. But yeah, Ed has to go back to Chris for more notes because he pretty much wants to propose to her, uh, even though he's only known her for at most a week. I was surprised. That long. I was surprised by this scene. Um, yeah. So Ed is very quick to rush in and Chris comments on that, but Chris is, uh, gets on the bandwagon with do, it. Well, do you, do you understand the thing that he says to get on board though? Cause they sort of have like a back and forth rebuttal between Ed and Chris where Ed is trying to convince Chris to write the letter and they use leave it to beaver references. No, I actually didn't get that. <laughs> Did you? I didn't either. No, I had no idea what they were talking about. Like what Ed was saying. Well, Chris does give, um, he, he agrees. He thinks it's a good idea for Ed to get married. He loves, he loves that Ed is in love, but he does offer really good advice. He says, somewhere down the line, you're going to have to communicate with her. Like that's part of marriage. And Ed says, well, um, no, I mean, like he, he references, he references a married couple in Sicily that he saw at the wash and dry. And for the whole four hours that they were doing their laundry, they didn't say a word to each other. So there's these two competing ideas of what marriage should be. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And then finally, Chris concedes and says, like, uh, you know what? It comes to a point in which, uh, you know, not, it's, it's going to go downhill from here. It's like, whatever. I'll just start doing yeah, it Yeah, that's you. what I thought was weird because, well, I, mean, I think I think I figure out why. But at the time of, at the time of watching in that scene, uh, Chris seems to be trying to give him really heartfelt good advice. But he kind of throws it out the window. He's like, yeah, whatever. What the heck? Let's just do it. <laughs> and he writes a letter for Ed. And I was like, why are you setting Ed up for failure if you know that? But, um, but I think he does it with um, the knowledge that in the next day, he's going to give a broadcast, which will um, foil all of Ed's plans. Yeah. Well, do you think he did it on purpose to foil Ed's plan? Yeah. So what we're talking about is um, when Ed does sit down to dinner with the Duncans, Chris in the morning comes on the radio. And uh, actually, before we get there, I just want to talk very briefly. Um, Father Duncan asks Ed what his interests are. Ed uh, tells him about the movies. And Father Duncan uh, <laughs> brings up the film Boys Town. What is, Father Duncan says something to the effect of um, the representation of the clergyman has not been the greatest in, uh, in current times in, in, in film. TV. This was in 1990. Yeah. Like, if he thought it was bad then, oh, man, wait till... <laughs> Spotlight wait, wait till the 2000s, man. <laughs> yeah, he's... You're right. Um, but no, he's like, um, what, you know, make another film like Boys Town. That was a great uh, representation. And um, I thought it sounded familiar. Boys Town is the Spencer Tracy film that Ed is watching in episode two of this season, The Big Kiss. Oh, that's the film? Yeah, it's about um, a preacher or a clergyman Here's um, the story of an inmate who says, if I had one friend growing up, I probably would have lived a much better life. And that clergyman makes it his mission to set up uh, sort of an orphanage of sorts, maybe, or, you know, a town for boys. And that's the clip that Ed is watching in the oh, beginning of that episode. Okay, so he's like looking for a father figure. Okay. Yeah. But no, yeah. So it comes back again, Boys Town. Um, nice returns. Oh, oh, real fast. It is interesting because uh, Henry Bromwell, who wrote uh, The Big Kiss, is also one of the writers of this episode with Robin Green. Oh, so he must he, have a uh, infatuation with the big uh, Boys Town then. Yeah, he's probably got a lot of. Um, so he probably wanted to incorporate a lot of the themes of uh, of that movie into. Ed's story, you know, searching for a father, being an orphan. He saw a lot of connections there. And he brought it up again with this uh, sort of clergyman. Yeah. Plot. 
Why do you think Lightfeather was really suspicious whenever Ed gave him the reply, gave uh, the father the reply that he wanted to be a movie director? Oh, I didn't notice that. So what does she do? Yeah, she kind of gives him like a scrutinizing look. Well, is it because movie directors are like the puppet masters and like they're not actually the writers of the film? Therefore, like the... Yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say that. But I think Ed would want to be a writer director. You know, the auteurs, a lot of the notable directors are both writer and director. Though you're right. They're not always the writer. So that is a subtle hint, I think. You might be right. That's the only thing I can get out of it, but I don't know why it would show that. Because immediately when he says it, it, she shows that look. And then it returns when she hears the broadcast that Chris is saying. Yeah, maybe it's sort of a subtle thought she has about... You're right. Yeah, I kind of I kind of like that, that is Charles. Incredibly smart of yeah. her if she was able to pick that <laughs> yeah. out. No, yeah, we we don't give her enough credit, but um yeah, so that's when Chris Chris's broadcast comes on and he starts putting in sort of like hiding little clues, uh words in his broadcast that reference the poem that Lightfeather has memorized and keeps quoting. So she realizes that this intimate knowledge that should only be between her and Ed, Chris somehow knows this and I, I I'm sure she puts it together that Chris is the one who wrote these letters that Ed has been giving her. I like the I, I like how the plotline resolves itself. Yeah, how does that go? Well, uh, she confronts Chris in K-Bear. Yeah, like late at night. Yeah, late at night. It's really intimate. And she doesn't actually want to sleep with him, and nor does he. I like the way it was written. I hate the context <laughs> of it, but like the way it was written was really nice. He says, uh, look, no offense, Lightfeather, but I got to draw the line at any indication of freckles. It's not a values judgment. It's just for you. It's an accident by birth. But for me, it's an arbitrary preference. <laughs> just the way that it's written just rolls off the tongue really well. The context of it is uh, really, kind of really yeah, mean. Well, it's very um, uh, superficial and uh, yeah. outside, of, outside beauty appearance is what I, I guess Chris has a type, as we learn. It's not freckles. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's, a, it's a fun little um, twist of words. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that the way it resolves itself is that Chris just has to like write her a bunch of book recommendations because that's yeah. kind of a neat way to seal it up because he he's now putting the duty into her hands to find the happiness that she wants because uh, he doesn't go and write like more letters. He writes one more. like He writes the final one. But otherwise, he just gives her the direction that she needs to head toward and then that's it. Yes. In in the same way that Ed has lost his virginity, do you think that do you think that Lightfeather, this isn't her first time having sex? Well let me let's go get right back to that. I was just trying to say that th- there's a relation maybe in Ed losing his virginity and Lightfeather discovering sort of um eroticizing the landscape as Chris puts it, the sort of erotic literature and sort of this imagery and metaphor in writing. Do you think that Lightfeather has done this before and is only now, like the, the, the new part of it for her is, is the words? That's a really good point. I didn't put that it's together. It's not really brought up, but, but Ed seems very visibly shaken by losing his, losing his virginity. He's very excited yeah. and surprised. Uh, Lightfeather is only really concerned with the words. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think possibly you're right. Uh, she's probably, from what we can tell, not a virgin though there's good points to make that she probably is a virgin yeah. if only because that she is in a very religious household mm-hmm. we're we're overanalyzing as we do but um oh we are yeah we are 
just the thought deep end right here. Just the thought <laughs> that it's just I, a pod. <laughs> yeah, just the thought that but, I came, that came into my mind. Um, yeah, I I like that, and you know, this is going to tie into the central theme of this plotline, which is the transmuting of experiences, because this seems like something that she's not going to go back on. Like she's not going to revert back to the status quo of what she was beforehand. Yeah, she's probably going to go down this path of enjoying what she's seeing right here, just like how Ed can never return back to the status quo of being a virgin again. Like it's, yeah, uh, it's impossible. It's <laughs> binary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I could imagine Lightfeather becoming like a poet after this, you know, you're right. I think this changes her life in a large way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, you know, Chris does show remorse. Yeah. Remorse. Yeah. There's this. the scene right after this, uh, or, or after this when Ed is heartbroken because Lightfeather has figured it out. Uh, that, His ruse. Yeah. And uh, Chris has to go see Ed, who is, um, I I think he's watching Dr. Zhivago. I'm not really sure. But um, Ed's in bed. He's pretty depressed. Chris has to console him. And as you said, sort of the central theme of this storyline, I really like what Chris has to say. All right, look here. I know you're not going to believe this, all right? And I know you're hurting, but this experience is going to transmute itself. It is. You do something like this, and it tears you apart. But eventually, it becomes one of your fondest memories. So it's a it's a really good sort of heart-to-heart. Chris does feel incredibly guilty, you know, that he at one moment was very happy for Ed to have found love, but was also the person who took that away from Ed. But in the end, it's sort of like, um, you know, you, you learn a lot about life, um, not through your successes, or from things going right, but from pain and from heartbreak and from making mistakes, you know? Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think that this is one of those things, uh, the the lesson right there, what they're trying to teach is that, you know, there are some things that you just can't put it back together once it happens. Mm-hmm. You just have to go on from there. And like, Ed's not going to go back to what he was beforehand, but you, you turn that into something else, hopefully positive. Just, um, just speaking of Chris as like, a mastermind. You remember how we were talking about in the scene where he sort of flip-flops from trying to convince Ed, you need to talk to her, you need to communicate, to, oh, what the heck, I'll write you the letter. <laughs> yeah, that kind of ties in with, maybe Chris is seeing that, because like the idea that um, you have to learn things the hard way sometimes. Someone can tell you the exact answer, they can point you to it and show you. Communication is key, but the only way Ed is going to pick this up is if he has to have his heart broken, maybe. Um, yeah, maybe Chris is that much of a forward thinker and a mastermind. Even if he's not, it does play out in that way where, you know, Ed, there's no way Ed could have understood this without having to go through it the hard way, I guess. Yeah, okay. That's a really good analysis of that. Uh, why do you think this episode is called War and Peace? Other than the obvious Russian uh, references. Yeah, other than the obvious Tolstoy. You know, I can't say. Let's think. Um, our, our three main plot lines are hauling, uh, his insomnia, perhaps, uh, war being, um, the opposite of, uh, you know, sort of war being like the hunting and peace being, uh, his like photography. He doesn't hunt anymore. And sort of the warring ideas of, uh, maybe him being such a pacifist for so long has built up this anxiety inside of him that he needs to sort of cleanse or purge out of himself by going on the hunt again. Uh, not a, not a strong enough tie for me for the title, but it's an option. Yeah. Between Lightfeather and Ed, I don't know. I don't know either. Well, tangentially related, but in War and Peace, there is a duel. 
Like yeah. there's a duel between Peter and Dolokhov. Right. And there's also love letters. I think Natasha receives a lot of letters from oh. Anatole. Oh, okay. Okay, so yeah. there's there's uh, there's that, you know. But th- those are so broad that I think that can be applicable to a lot of things. Well, not like a whole lot of things, but you know what I mean. Like, it's just, I don't think that's why they named it War and Peace, was because of those two things. I haven't read War and Peace. It's a pretty big book. But um, <laughs> uh, maybe the writers were trying to do their own spin on War and Peace. And I don't know how big of a, a storyline that the um, the love letters exchanging are in War and Peace. The duel and the love letter are only like 70 pages. Okay. So it's probably yeah. not a huge... Uh, well, maybe it's yeah. just memorable to the screenwriters and they wanted to recreate that in the world, the universe of Sicily. So Yeah. It, it is a pivotal part of the book, though. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, in yeah. fact, I think that Chris is actually reading from that part. He's reading volume two, part five. Right. Okay. That part of the duel and the uh, love letters. And the love letters. Okay. So it's applicable um, for sure. Yeah. I, I say that that works for the title. Overall, I think I really enjoyed the episode. Yeah, you said this is really exciting for you, the uh, the way they they kind of broke the rules. Yeah, and it's not only that. I just really am a fan of the Ed Lightfeather uh, plotline, but maybe that's because I'm just a sucker for any the heartbreak. Did you like first love the first the first love the heartbreak? What did you like yeah, so much about it? Those are always really good themes to explore. Yeah. I don't I don't know why I have a, such a predilection toward them, but I like it whenever the characters you ordinarily don't see going into that territory or in that territory now. And you, you said you love, I mean, I guess everyone would love, but you love uh, seeing large character change. And that definitely happens for Lightfeather, for Ed. Yeah, there's uh, definitely changes up there that doesn't revert back to the status quo. And there's a lot of growth within the characters, which I am pro that. I am a giant uh, proponent of that. I like how Ed um, relates uh, having sex for the first time to watching the movie Alien. <laughs> He's just something like, it's like that movie Alien. Everybody told me how good it was. And then I saw it. And it was much better than anything I'd ever thought it would be. And I watched that movie four times. And each time you get something different from it. You see something that you didn't notice before. I used to like movies. And now everything's just mud. I do, I do remember my first time watching Alien. I think I was... 16. Did I show you Alien? I feel like you I did. Yeah, we watched yeah. it at my parents' house. Yeah, we were watching it and then like... Uh, it's good. Yeah, it, it really was. It was like a really great film when I was watching. I was like, this is really good. Like, I finally understood all the references. Uh, but <laughs> I don't know if I liked it to the degree that Ed liked it. Well, Ed's a big... He's really into cinema, I guess. He has he has a right to, to love something a little more strongly. Love a movie. Apart from that, there's a couple little notes. I mean, little things here and there that kind of caught my eye um whenever chris is explaining erotic literature to Lightfeather, he brings up baudelaire a french poet and uh wet cat fur yeah i didn't catch that did you did you understand what that meant no i mean i, I haven't read a lot of i don't think i've read any baudelaire maybe maybe here or there i've read something in a compilation but uh he has a poem called the cat so maybe that's what he's referencing. Mm. <laughs> uh, I was kind of reading that a little bit before we started recording. Oh, wait, I forgot to talk about this, but you know when Chris was having that talk with Ed on the bed and he's, they're getting down to the brass tacks? Yeah. Uh, Chris said that he had experienced this, but he uh, experienced it at the age of seven? He says something like it was his first trip into the realm of the senses when he was seven years old in Wheeling, West Virginia. Yeah, I've, I kind of noted that down. What happened when he was seven years old? I'm hoping he's talking about the concept of love. 
like he figured or he maybe realized what sex was not having sex, but like the concept, like he understood yeah. what that meant. Cause that's, um, yeah, it's pretty that troubling if someone would lose their virginity at that age. That is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> that is actually, but oh I, I, shame on the writers for being so vague about it right there. Like, I know, really. Shame on them for that because that <laughs> threw me for a loop. I thought for a split second, I was like, did he, is he like a product of like. Hey, we don't know. Uh, you know I, don't, I don't even want to talk about we it. It's like really terrible. We can't um, assume anything that they meant. I'm just going to leave that scene alone. Uh, cause yeah, I did write it down. It was kind of weird to, it was a weird, uh, the vagueness of that scene was strange to me. Well, let's see what our guest has to say about it. Our guest this episode is, uh, my good friend, my roommate, Evan, who, uh, has heard about this podcast through, through being my roommate and yeah, has was he heard it through the walls. Yeah. <laughs> and was very excited about, uh, the prospect and he really wanted to be a guest so sorry evan you haven't gotten to to guest sooner than this but i was around when he was uh, sort of watching the episodes at one point this episode and he told me that he's watched it twice at least twice since last time i spoke to him he seemed to be really into it let's i guess let's see what he picked up yeah take it away Okay, so as I was telling Lee, uh, it's probably been about 25 years since I've seen an episode of Northern Exposure. Uh, I think the last time I watched an episode was probably when I was like four, five, six years old uh, at home with my mom. Probably she was folding laundry, I was eating lunch, something like that. Uh, so it was really a big treat to get to go back and watch one of these episodes for the first time in so long. And I gotta say, right off the bat, I was impressed by how intelligently written the show is. I, I don't know what I expected, but I definitely didn't expect writing on this caliber, you know. Uh, especially this episode, with all the Russian literature and philosophy references, uh, I kind of felt like I missed some inside jokes there that I might have otherwise gotten. One of the things that I also noticed right off the bat was, uh, I've been trying to think of how to explain this, the backdrop of Alaska kind of seemed to make the 90s themes of this show, like the, the, as far as the fashion and whatnot, stand out a little bit more. Um, you wouldn't expect to see pastel-colored sweatshirts uh, in, in Alaska. And another thing that really, something I thought was really interesting, and I'd kind of like to wait and talk to you guys about this, uh, they shattered the fourth wall in this episode the way that I haven't seen done anywhere else other than like Mel Brooks films. Uh, and they even broke the fourth wall in two separate scenes. The initial one where they broke the fourth wall during the duel, uh, and then later on the next scene at the restaurant after all, you know, making up and whatnot, um, I think her name is Megan, is talking to the Dr. Joe, I believe about them breaking the fourth wall while they're in character, which was kind of a bit of a mind bender. Um, and so I was, you know, how deliberately and how, like, obviously they shattered the fourth wall kind of made me wonder, do they do this in other episodes too? Is this something that they'll occasionally pull out of the hat once in a while? Uh, definitely interested to discuss all this. Uh, looking forward to getting in and talking to all you guys about the episode. I'd, I'd like to hear what you guys have to say since you're obviously... Um, more of the masters of this domain than I am. So uh, I guess that's it. All right. That was Evan with the guest commentary for season two, episode six. I really like his commentary. Yeah. He seemed to really enjoy the show. Um, turns out he probably watched it as a, as a young kid, but um, um, never really had an experience watching it, I guess, like a, like a real sit down experience. Yeah. I, I like that he um, enjoyed the quality of the writing. I like what he had to say about the colors of, of costuming. Yeah, and the I was landscape. Gonna, 
I was going to comment on that because we we don't do that enough, but I feel that we should be commenting on the wardrobe decisions because he made a really interesting observation about the uh, pastel pastel pastels. Yeah. Pastel. I can, I never know how to pronounce that word. <laughs> uh, pastel colors scattered throughout the episode. And I just did a quick skim throughout the episode and he's totally right. Um, Shelly's got some pretty amazing colors going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the MVP of this episode for that is a uh, light feather actually. Oh really? Yeah. She, yeah. She has a lot of, uh, great colors going on. Yeah, I I think we comment on the color of light and sometimes the color um, red and the color blue, but there's a lot going on um, in the color schemes, you know, sometimes. So it's good to good to pay attention to that. I feel like what really struck Evan was the the breaking of the fourth wall. The breaking of the fourth wall by Megan and Joe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ma- uh, Maggie and Joel. That's very close though. Yeah. It's, People I have gotten it far worse, you yeah. know. <laughs> So, yeah, it's um, pretty interesting to hear that this is sort of the first time, or I, I like that he pointed out that he's never seen the fourth wall broken in such a degree, like maybe apart from uh, Mel Brooks films or something like that. This is a, a very bold move, you know, we yeah. mentioned. Unfortunately, Evan, that was the first time and probably the only time I'm going to guess, or like at least going to be used sparingly because they do not do this often. Oh yeah. Uh, this was the first the time that they broke the the fourth wall here. Well, well this, this hasn't happened before and you know, no spoilers, maybe it won't happen again, but this, this isn't the first time the show has done something strange. You know, we were very impressed with the, the dream sequences and goodbye to all that. Um, the Russian flu, you know, I, I think, um, there's a lot of fun to be had still in this show. Maybe they won't go as far as this, but uh, they'll find new ways to to reinvent on on such a low, on such a, a standardized, unwavering budget. They've got to find the the different ingredients to keep it fresh, you know. But Evan comments on something that we didn't really touch on in our commentary is uh, how they're still breaking the fourth wall even in the the following scene. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. We did not discuss that at all. It's kind of like a wink, wink, nod, nod at the audience. Yeah, they're they're definitely in character at this point. But uh, Maggie says something to the effect of, "I didn't think you had it in you, Joel. Like you, were, I didn't think you would be, but but you really, uh, you were impressive or something. I, I forget what <laughs> what compliment yeah. she gives him, but she's complimenting him. When you really analyze it with a close lens, uh, that is fascinating. That there's still." <laughs> You know, they're, they're, they're trailing off of it, but it's still, the remnants are still there. At once they are both the actors sort of breaking the wall, but also in character in this scene, uh, Maggie and Joel. It's pretty cool. You know, it just occurred to me that, uh, I know that you said that it was the character that you thought would be best to break the fourth wall would be Chris. And I had answered that. I thought that a character who would be best in breaking the fourth wall will be Ed. And if we go off of my answer of Ed breaking the fourth wall, the most likely candidate, it's very funny that Ed had the plot line of being the most quote unquote human plot line, like him falling first in love. Okay. Like, yeah. Like universally human. Yeah. Plot line. Whereas the other characters got the very wacky, uh, working within the realms of television. Right. Uh, plot line. Fantastic. So the roles were reversed right there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to uh, to talk with Evan when he gets back home from work. He actually sent that recording from work. Ooh, maybe I shouldn't mention that. 
I hope his uh, boss doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> I mean, who are we kidding? Fired. <laughs> who are we kidding? They're not listening to this. No. So yeah, I can't wait to talk to Evan and kind of go a little more in depth on that, <laughs> on what, on his thoughts. But I appreciate uh, that he kept it short and uh, really to the point. I really liked a lot of what he had to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. All right, Charles. Let's talk again next episode. The season finale. Season finale. Episode seven of season two. It's called Slow Dance. Do you have have anything to say about that? I did, and I was like, oh, that's not good. I was (laughs) like, I did for like a split second. I just dropped it. Yeah, I was like, nah, don't say that. (laughs) I'll be on permanent record if you say that. All right. Well, we have like a we'll have like a week for you to think of something to say. (laughs) All right. I'll see you then, Charles. All right, I'll see you then, man. Northern Overexposure Podcast was edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Evan for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.